Thank you, Randy. Be seated. And uh, kids, you're missed for Gospel Project. Hope you have a great time together. If you're new here with us today, welcome. Uh, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors. We're going through a book in the Bible called Philippians. So if you would turn with me there, please, that would be great. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there should be one under the chair in front of you. And find a table of contents where you can look up a book in the New Testament called Philippians. We are finishing out uh, chapter 3, headed into chapter 4 today. I think we'll have a great time together. Philippians chapter 3 is where we'll be today. Uh, You may have heard the saying that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. The idea, of course, behind that saying is that to choose to pattern your life after someone else is to give him or her the highest compliment possible. Uh, When I was growing up, all the craze was a song called Like Mike. Does anybody remember it? I was going to ask Gracie to come up and sing, but she wasn't born then. (laughs) So... This was, song was, of course, about Michael Jordan, the great basketball legend. It goes like this. I won't sing it. I'll read it. It says, I don't actually remember how it goes, believe it or not. It says, sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's who I dream to be. I dream I move. I dream I groove like Mike. Anybody remembering this? No? Like Mike, like Mike, if I could be like Mike. I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Mike, like Mike, if I could be like Mike. Do it, do it. So (laughs) we we bought his shoes. We wore shirts with his signature dunk on them. We even hung our tongues out the way he did as he shot the ball. Whether we realize it or not, we are all imitators. We're all looking to be like somebody. That's part of what it means to be human beings. The very first page of the Bible tells us that we're image bearers, that we're mirrors, that we're seeking to pattern our life after someone or something. We see this every day. Uh, We hear it in the little child playing with her doll. She'll end up telling that doll to quit fussing so much if that's what her mom tells her. We experience at work when we bark orders to our subordinates because that's how those above us treat us. And we learn that that's how we then treat others. Our hearts break for the concerned wife whose husband sits on the couch watching TV instead of getting down on the floor just a few feet away from his kids where he can have a great time with them because that's all he ever saw his dad do. We encounter it in professors who make things unnecessarily difficult because they were hazed and they've got to pass on that hazing. We're imitators. That's what it means to be a human being. Everyone is imitating someone. You are imitating someone. Consciously or subconsciously, our attitudes, our beliefs, and our behaviors largely mirror those who we choose to imitate. And in our text today, Paul 
is going to talk about that very thing. But he's going to hold up two very different groups of people. And he's going to tell us, imitate this one, but don't imitate this one. You see, we're all imitators, but not every example out there, not every mentor is equal in their place to be imitated. The trajectory of our lives will largely be determined by who we choose to imitate. So let's look together at verse 17, and we'll see that together. Chapter 3, verse 17. It says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many whom I have often told you, and now even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory in their shame, with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So there's two groups, those who, we're, who we would be wise to imitate our lives after and those who we would be unwise to imitate our lives after. So let's take the negative of first. It's incredibly common to hear Christians in general, and preachers in particular, attack the broader secular culture around us. I think that's driven by the assumption that bad people are out there and good people are in here. So when we get to this kind of passage, our temptation, if we're not careful, is to want to talk about them. So the people out there. But if you read this paragraph closely, you'll see that Paul's concern for the Philippian church was not that they would pick mentors outside the church who were problems, but that they would pick mentors inside the church who were problems. Earlier in chapter 3, a few weeks ago, Paul referred to these people as dogs, as evildoers, Meaning, they were self-righteous people in the church who claimed to be following Christ, but who actually were building their lives around themselves, not God. People who trusted their own works, not the work of Christ. People whose resume, if you'll remember, said at the top, I trust Jesus, but then the entire rest of their resume said nothing about Him. It was all about them. They were all filled up, not with the love of God, but with their own moralistic behaviors that they thought would make them right with God. You see, they were cross imposters. So, to put it plainly, just because someone sits in a room like this and says the words, I'm a Christian, doesn't mean they actually are doesn't mean that their lives are worthy of emulation. You see, back then and today, not all who claim Christ actually belong to Christ. 
With eyes full of tears, Paul warns us that there are some who sound like the real thing. But if you actually look at their motives for life and listen to their theology closely and look at how they behave when nobody's looking, they're not actually people trusting Jesus at all, but trusting themselves. These cross imposters in, in Philippi claimed Christ with their mouths but denied him with their actions. While saying, I believe the gospel, they lived everyday life with a frame of mind that was self-centered and earthly. So their real aim was to please themselves. And they were endlessly drawn to not what would point to God, but what would point to themselves. Now, I, um, I listen to a lot of sermons and Honestly, I hardly ever hear anyone talk like that. Hardly ever hear anyone warn us that that can happen. But it's fairly common in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Paul in other passages says the same type of thing to different churches. Here's just one example. It'll be on the screens. Romans chapter 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine with which you've been taught. Avoid them. He's not talking about the world, people outside the church. He's talking about people inside the church. Verse 18, For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Brothers and sisters, we are susceptible to being deceived. Ourselves, first of all, and then by others. So Church on Mill, don't imitate cross imposters. It will ruin you if you follow those who are fake. However smart, successful, friendly, and attractive these kinds of people might be. Don't follow the spiritually phony. Instead, be imitators of followers of Christ. Take on their way of life. I spent a lot of time this week thinking about what exactly would a phony follower of Christ look like today? And I don't want to give you that answer. I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider that and to first not look outside yourself but to look inside and to say, am I one? Is it possible that I have claimed the name of Christ but I have not actually taken him on as my Savior? That may perhaps be the more important question. So that's what we're not, who we're not supposed to follow. Let's spend more time, though, on those we are to imitate our lives after. Look again at verse 17. It says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Let's be honest for a moment. Doesn't that sound rather arrogant? That a man, a human being, would say, Follow me. Doesn't that sound incredibly arrogant? Well, to our current sensibilities, that does sound prideful. 
But just like the warning, don't follow fake people, is common in the scriptures, so is this. Follow those who are following Christ. Let me show you an example from another passage. Hebrews chapter 13. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. One of the most important duties of church leaders is to live lives worthy of your emulation. Now, if that doesn't scare somebody like me, they shouldn't be doing it. But friends, um, it's not just the leaders that we're to follow. Don't misunderstand. Living as genuine followers of Christ, inviting people to follow you, to be mentored by you, is not limited to the stuff of leaders. It's literally for every Christian, every single one. There is no professional and junior varsity in the Christian life. There is no red-shirted freshman. We're all, your red shirt, Roger, is glaring at me now. We're all to be people inviting others to follow us as we follow Christ. Now, yes, in Philippians, we have Paul and Timothy. But remember, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we also have Epaphroditus, who apparently held no leadership position. And he's given as an example of how to follow God. But perhaps even more importantly, we're given Jesus himself as a model for Christian living. Not merely for the pastor, but for the entire church. Look back at chapter 2, verse 3, where all this train of thought largely started. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you should look out not for your own interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. As we live out Christ in us, by His grace, in His strength, then we can gradually become people whose lives look like Christ. Isn't that encouraging? One of the things I love the most about Church on Mill is that God has given us tremendous growth in this particular area. There are more and more and more of us who, in God's strength, shockingly, are becoming more like Him and are inviting other people to be discipled and to grow. Almost daily, I hear somebody say, I've been meeting up with so-and-so simply to get together and read the Bible and talk about our lives. Not a big, fl fancy, flashy program, but the stuff of everyday life. That's what we do as Christians. Church, you, you understand in a growing way that the Christian life is a shared life. And that much of our learning how to follow Jesus isn't taught in this way. It's caught in the normal, everyday stuff of life. I love hearing stories of how you're inviting people to come along as you run errands and as you share meals together, as you call upon each other when there's a time of need, as you ask each other great questions 
as you lovingly challenge each other to grow. Just be mindful that in all that time we spend together, that we've got to get to Jesus. He's the goal. So we don't just want to change our behavior. We want it to be transformed from the inside out. Parents in particular, I thought of you, I thought of us this week as I worked on this sermon. Make sure your goal isn't simply to raise responsible adults. That's your goal, you'll fail your kids. There's something far more important than having an ethically kind child. The goal is to see a little person transformed by God into a Christ-like adult. If sometimes they talk with their mouth full, but that's happening, praise God. So what do you look for in a discipler or a mentor? If you're listening to this thinking, I'm not consciously imitating my life after another Christian. How do I find one? What do I look for? What exactly am I to imitate? Well, the emphasis in this passage is that you would look at their way of life, that you would imitate their lifestyle. So look for people whose lives reveal that their deepest longing is to know Jesus more and more and more. You're not looking for somebody who never has a problem. You're not looking for the Stepford Christian. You're looking for the real deal. The person who doesn't have it all together, but when they fail will admit it and say, I more than anything want to know God more. Look for people like the runner we talked about last week who's running all of life towards the goal of knowing Jesus with grace-filled determination. Look for one thing, Christians. People whose lives reveal they, more than anything else, want to come to know God more. Ethnicity doesn't matter. Degrees especially seminary degrees, don't matter. Titles are inconsequential. That's not the stuff you're looking for. Look instead for people whose humility is evident, people who are consistently engaged in the things of God, people who take their church membership seriously, people who don't act like they have it all together, but who are serious about their Savior. That's what you're looking for. And there's many, many, many of them around this room today. And then, what do you do? Well, don't ask them to be your mentor or your discipler for the rest of their life. Instead, say, would you meet up with me once? And then if that goes well, ask to be included some in their lives. And then just try to spend time around them, watching, observing, and asking questions. One of the particular joys we have as a church family is a plethora of young people. And look around. There's so many here in college, international students and scholars. These are very often people who are eager to be mentored. And so if you're past that stage in life, there's absolutely no excuse to not have one, two, three, four 
of those kinds of people hanging around your life. This is a deep joy we have as a church. So I want to encourage you to seek out those kinds of people. Why? Well, brothers and sisters, this is an extremely serious matter. Because imitating the right kind of people and becoming Christians who invite others to follow us is no game. This isn't optional. This isn't for super Christians. This isn't for those who have finally reached the point of knowing enough. This is normal Christianity. Back in verse 19, Paul told the Philippian church that among them were phony Christians. And then listen to how he described them. He says, these phony Christians are people whose end is destruction, whose God is their fleeting appetites and passing passions, whose glory is in things they ought to be ashamed of, and whose focus was set on earthly things. That is aggressive language. Paul's point is clearly If you follow those kinds of people, you will share their fate. That's a warning, an aggressive warning, to be careful who you're singing, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like them. But on the other hand, Paul told the church that there are genuine followers of Christ right here among you whose end is eternal citizenship in heaven, whose God is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who will be so transformed that even their bodies will become glorious and whose focus is on the all-powerful Jesus Christ. And his point is clearly, follow them, and by God's grace, you too will become like them. See, this is no joke This is eternal. Church, this is why we exist. This is what we're here for. This is Christianity. Vintage Christianity. Disciples making disciples. Friends, those who pursue Jesus will joyfully produce those who pursue Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. So I'd ask you today, if you're a brother and sister, if you're a church member, if you're a follower of Christ, is your example drawing people upward? By the way that you're living your life, are people being invited to follow you? That's what Church on Mill is for. That's what verse 17 calls us to. Join in imitating me. This is our collective effort. Something I discovered this week I didn't know is in verse 17 when Paul says, join in imitating me, he actually coined a word. It's not anywhere else in the entire Bible and it's nowhere else in ancient Greek literature that's been discovered so far. The word is sumimetai. Sounds kind of like samurais, but that's not what it means. It means to join together 
with other people who are being imitators. Only time it's occurred. It means we are united in our imitation. So think of synchronized swimmers. Or if that's too girly for you, uh, think of the line of scrimmage in the football game. Both of those pictures, everyone's looking at each other and you're imitating one another. That's what Paul says church is. We look around at each other and we imitate each other as we follow Christ. Isn't that a cool picture? So far from being an hour-long event once a week where you're all sitting and facing one person, it's a lifelong pursuit as we look at each other as we're seeking to follow Christ together. This is church. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 27, said you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's merely coming back around to what he's already told us because we've got to hear it again and again and again. This is church, a new humanity showing the world how great the love of God is. Living close enough to Christ that you can invite others to follow you as you follow Christ is hard work. This is not easy. This will expose everything in you that has yet to be submitted to Christ. That, I think, is why we avoid it. But what a gift that is. God loves you enough that he has set things up. The, the potter has taken the clay and put it on the wheel, and he's molding you and shaping you in such a way that it's not just for you, that as you help others, you are helped. It's brilliant but it is painful. But simply because something's painful doesn't mean it's to be avoided. It's the very tool that God has given us that we may grow. You see, it requires sacrifice. It requires lots of unconditional love for other people. And it will invariably mean you get disappointed and hurt. But the basis for this is nothing less than the completion of our transformation into Christ-likeness. Look again at verse 20. Let me show you that. It says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His by the power that enables Him to subject all things to to himself. In other words, Christians, we are to imitate solid believers and invite others to imitate us because we're citizens not merely of Caesar's city, but of the eternal city of God. Jesus' city, Jerusalem. Now that's still a bit fuzzy for us. So let me say it even more plainly. What is shaping us most today ought not mainly be our past, our future. See, our future is that the king will return for all his people. But we're already Christians, belonging, citizens, 
passport carriers of a far better kingdom. And that kingdom then and there is shaping us today. Through the gospel, we're already citizens of heaven. And we're to let that fact roll back into our present experience and be the determining factor for how we live today. That means quite simply that we don't live for momentary pleasure, but for eternal glory. I read a great illustration that really helped grasp that concept for me this week. If Imagine if I had a huge pile of rope here on the stage, and it stretched all the way from the stage to the other side of Tempe Town Lake. And that rope represented your existence. And the first two inches of that rope were painted red to represent life on earth. And the rest of that rope represented of your existence, eternity. Which section of that rope would it make more sense to live your life focused on? The, the two little inches or the rest of it? Why do we spend so much time on the two inches? Or put it another way, if you go to visit a new place, new city, never been there before, you check in your hotel room, I'm dragging 15 bags full of decorations, lamps, pictures, new bedspread, some rugs, new towels. Is that what you do? No, Why? You're only there for a night or two or three. But why are you spending all of your time decorating the trappings of the hotel room of your life when it's but a moment? Friends, God invites us to focus today on tomorrow. And as you do that, you'll find far more joy in life. Christians, our citizenship is in heaven and our hope for the resurrection is sure. And so we call each other to follow as we follow Christ, even when that means great sacrifice. Now there's an elephant in the room in this passage. It's the word citizenship. It says our citizenship is in heaven, meaning our future is 100% secure with God forever today. Now, understand that with all honesty and transparency, I can tell you, we planned this series through Philippians last April. I am not smart enough to orchestrate this in such a way that we end up two days before an election in a passage that's raising the issue of citizenship. But God is. So let me speak briefly, just for a moment, to three groups of people that are here today. The first is visiting 
internationals, students, and scholars. And I want to say really transparently to you, you are witnessing an incredibly embarrassing election season. I am not joking. I don't know why you're laughing. The United States is a representative government. And so what that means is what you've been observing in our news is representative of who we become. And so I would say on behalf of all the other citizens of the United States here that we're sorry. That we're embarrassed. That we would like to represent something better. But this is what the majority of us have become. And so would you please forgive us for the way you've been maligned and mistreated. Now to a very different group of people, I would like to say to those who are here who tend to put your hope in the government, whose temptation is to think that all of who we are is wrapped up in what's going on in Washington. Friend, if you're a Christian, your citizenship is in heaven. On this election week, the main thing you need to remember is that there are little colonies of heaven all over the world. Those little colonies are not secular governments. They're little churches. Churches are embassies of heaven, not governments, none of them. And so our hope isn't in the message coming out of Washington, D.C. Our hope is in little rooms like this all over the world where the gospel is being shared. The U.S. government, not any other government, has that role. Only the church has it. No government. So we look not to Washington, D.C. for our hope, but to heaven. Not to Clinton or to Trump, but to Jesus. One great thing this election has done is shown us the stupidity of putting your hope in the government. Now, those two groups of people, the international and those who put your hope who are tend to or are tempted to put your hope in Washington are probably not the majority of the room. My guess is the majority of the room are those who are disenfranchised and disheartened. And so just for a moment, let me speak to you. Listen to a few great political slogans of past candidates. Here's the first. Don't swap horses while crossing streams. Not great. Do you know who said it? Abraham Lincoln. That was Abraham Lincoln's campaign slogan in 1864. The Civil War was ripping, had ripped, the country almost in two. And his message was, don't jump horses while we're in the middle of this. Stay the course. He was right, and he united the country back together. Another, 
happy days are here again. That was FDR's slogan in 1932. The Great Depression had hit this nation incredibly hard. And Roosevelt's positivity was used in great leadership to pull the country together. And maybe the most famous, I like Ike. War II hero Dwight Eisenhower ran for president under that slogan, I like Ike. Simple and cheerful. That's what was needed in the 1950s. Those are brilliant slogans by historically important presidents. And we have no one running like that today. It's incredibly easy to be disenfranchised and disheartened with politics. But understand, Jesus is not running for president. He's king already. Whether you like it or not, Jesus is our ruler. And his slogan isn't some pithy phrase like, make America great again. It's this, from this passage. I'm Savior. I'm Lord. I'm Jesus. I'm Christ. All things are mine. Trust me and I will transform you. Because my body was broken, your body will be transformed. Those are his slogans. And they're not cute little sayings that most of us will forget. They're the truths that will endure forever. Now, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you're not so sure Christianity, let me clarify what all this means. Not politics, but this message of this paragraph. The Scriptures say that right now, if you are without Christ, you're not yet a believer, which, by the way, was every single person in this room at one point, then your existence is such that you are physically alive but spiritually dead. You were born that way born separated from God, and then further exacerbated that by your own thoughts and actions. That's the plight of everyone. That is humanity. But there is a love and a grace and a mercy unlike anything you have ever imagined. It's a love that isn't dependent on you. It's a love that is no way intrinsic to your own value or worth. It's a love from a sovereign who loves simply because he loves. In other words, it's a love not dependent on your actions, but on his. It's the love of God, the God of the Bible, the God who, regardless of who you are, and what you've done, offers you himself. And he offers you himself not if you'll first clean yourself up, make yourself comfortable, take a moral bath, if you will. He offers you himself in your very worst. Scripture says 
us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So on your very best day and on your very worst day, Christ died for you. And so the message that this paragraph is giving is if you will turn from life without Him and say, I believe. I've got questions, yes. There's some things I don't understand. But I believe Jesus came and died and rose again. And I'm willing to turn from life without him to life where he's in charge. Then you will be greeted, in fact, you already are, greeted with open arms by the God who knows everything about you. And so great is this love that this paragraph says something really odd. It says that your body will be transformed. And here's what that means. There's only a hint of it here, but if you'll, if you'll look later, take that Bible if you don't have one in the chair in front of you, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that chapter will tell you that the gospel, this message I've just shared with you, so big and so powerful that it not only changes the spiritual part of you, it not only gives you life spiritually, but when Jesus returns, it will transform you even physically. And what that means is your body right now is dying. Some of us are doing it faster and better than others. But our bodies are dying. They're breaking down. But Jesus will return, and Jesus has a different kind of body, one that has come back, resurrected, transformed, one that will never get sick again, one that will never shed a tear again, one that won't be breaking down. It will be perfect. And it will be perfect not for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, but forever. You see, the gospel the love of God transforms the whole person. So Paul tells us in this paragraph in Philippians that we can invite each other by God's grace to imitate each other because so tremendous is the power of God that it's not merely this thing you've got to close your eyes by faith and leap in the dark and hope is true. But it's even true physically such that your bodies will be transformed. I got lots of weird problems. I'm looking forward to that. Are you? If you'd like to hear more about that message, we'd love to tell you. Find somebody sitting around you afterwards. I'll be out on the patio. I'd love to visit with you. But this is the most important news you could ever hear. The Bible has told us today the trajectory of our lives will largely be determined by who you choose to emulate. So choose wisely. Let's pray. Father, what an immensely practical passage this is. Sometimes there's things in the Bible that are hard to understand and grasp, but, but this isn't. All of us, whether 
people we watch on TV, listen to on our phones, observe in our homes, seek at school or at work or at the gym. We're all looking to imitate, to emulate. We're aspiring like. Father, would you help us to understand the gravity of who we choose to emulate? We thank you that by grace, you haven't left us with a harsh word that we must try really hard in our own strength to follow Christ, but you've given us Christ himself, that through his power, a power that will even transform our bodies to live a life honoring to you. I pray for those in the room considering the claims of Christ that you would bring about understanding and that you would save. I pray for those who already have trusted you. That, Father, to the extent we've followed people that aren't good to follow, that you'd help us to choose better. To the extent that we've lived selfishly and not invited others to follow us as we follow Christ, God, that that would change. And Father, if any of us are deceived and we're claiming Christ but don't really know him, then I pray in your love, God, that you'd make that known. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.